This is the Communication Studies Podcast coming to you from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. This is a production of the School of Communication Studies, where I am a faculty. My name is Justin Young, and my guest this week is Dr. Rebecca Walker. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Justin. So excited to be here today. Well, I'm happy you're excited to be here. It makes my job easier if people are actually excited to be here. Um, so Rebecca teaches uh, primarily performance studies here in the department and everything. Uh, but one of the things I like to ask people before we get into what you're currently doing is how you got here. So how did you end up in um, studying communications and, and specifically in performance studies? Sure. Uh, I have a short answer and a longer answer, if that's okay. The short answer okay. is um, I liked a boy and wanted a reason <laughs> to talk to him. Plus, I wanted to hang out with my friends, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, basically, as an undergrad, I had very many majors. I started off undecided, then quickly became an English major, decided I didn't have the patience to write the great American novel or teach English lit to high school students. I also started out as an English major. Um, and then I became a history major for a while um, in a program to become a museum curator someday and was working on that. Um, not really enjoying it, but working on it. And in the core curriculum for my university, we had to have a public speaking course, as many universities like SIU do. Mm -hmm. And I was a lifelong stutterer. I have always had an issue with stuttering. Um, and so public speaking terrified me, and I always tried to run away from it. And so I didn't want to take the basic public speaking class for the core, but there were other options. And one of the options was an introduction to performance class in the communication program, kind of like our um, CMST 201 performing cultures class here at SIU. Right. And so I had done some theater work and things in my church and other places growing up. And I thought this I can do because for some reason I stutter less when I'm being someone else on stage. I mm -hmm. feel like I can hide behind the character than when it's just me in a kind of general public speaking situation. So that's really interesting because mm -hmm. that's common for a lot of people. Like a lot of people can sing um, yeah. who are stutters, but when they sing, because I suppose it's accessing a different part of your brain when you're doing it. Oh, that? yeah. The brain is. So, my next show that I'm kind of working on, on this, this little side note, is about stuttering and about my own experiences with that and people in general. So, I'm doing lots of research on that. And yeah, it is really fascinating from a communication perspective how stutterers kind of rewire their own brains to work with their stutter to work with their particular type of stutter, their particular type of disability, if you want to think of it that way, that they have to conquer to communicate out in the world. Um, but for me, uh, performing made that a little easier. So I took this class and I was doing pretty well in it. And I had a really attractive teaching assistant named Tal. And I wanted a reason to talk to him. I was convinced <laughs> as an undergrad that if I could get him alone, you know, he would magically fall in love with me, which of course did not happen. But I did go to talk with him about potentially changing my major because I was, as a history major, thinking, you know, um, I like this job, but do I really want to be like alone with artifacts all day? I kind of like interacting with people a little bit more. Sure. So um, I did that and I ended up changing my major to communication studies and finishing my undergrad degree that way. But I didn't, at the time, plan to go on and be a teacher. I got the degree. I went out into the world. I did some work, um, event planning for a company called YPO, Young Presidents Organization, where I got to travel around the world, and that was great. But as I said earlier, the second half of this is that my friends were going to school, and I wanted to hang out with them. So I'd made this great group of friends as a communication major, taking a lot of performance classes as an undergrad um, towards the end of my undergraduate career. 
And some of them had gone on to get a master's while I was off doing this other job. And my company I was working for actually had a program that you could um, get your your um, your classes paid for if you got like an A or B in them. Mm-hmm. And it, it and you know as you know in in graduate school that's practically what you have to get to stay in there. And so sure. I decided I'd go back and take like one or two classes a semester, hang out with my friends. And that was going pretty well. I couldn't do more than that at the time because I was traveling so much for my job that I couldn't miss that many classes. Um, mm-hmm. But then eventually I decided I didn't want to do that job and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, I have this master's degree I need to finish. I'll go back and finish that. I'll be a teaching assistant like some of my friends were. And I'll figure out what I want to do with my life while I'm doing that. And when that happened, and I actually got in the classroom and got to teach, and I should have known this because I actually come from some teachers in my family background. Um, I really loved teaching and enjoyed it and then decided this was the career path I wanted to go down. And so I finished my master's and went on and got the PhD. And that is how I ended up here at SIU. And you got your PhD at LSU? I did, yes. Okay, so a a pretty big school, pretty well-known school. Yes, much bigger than here in some ways, and a big football school, which is a different type of vibe if you've ever been to one of those universities. Right. Uh, But yeah, great program there. So one of the things you mentioned is growing up, you had been active in your church, and I'm assuming you mean like, um, like Christmas plays and pageants and that sort of stuff. Um, what, what was that experience like as a kid? Because I feel like that's something that leads a lot of young people into doing theater or performance of some kind. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Um, of course, everyone was encouraged to participate, and I think probably everyone who wanted to be a part was given a role, right? Right. Church. You can be the <laughs> lamb. <laughs> um, but I, I had a kind of a knack for it. I remember we had this series of plays. We went to a Baptist church in Maryland, so it was um, – Kind of, prod- it was um, kind of evangelical religious community, but not um, like in the South. It was very different mm-hmm. um, and much more liberal in some ways. And so we did a lot of fun things, and we did these plays um, that were based around this character called Nanny Bird that I guess the Southern Baptist Convention had written and put out there. And so I got to play different characters. We had like an alien that showed up and interacted with Nanny Bird and her friends in the forest. I played a little. That's doll. really interesting. <laughs> I don't remember many aliens. I know exactly. Um, so I'm assuming it was that kind of thing. I played a. I, I remember my favorite one I got to play was a character called Rebecca Ragdoll who was this ragdoll who got dropped in the woods and got dirty, and she was all upset because she liked to be pretty and clean, and she had gotten dirty. And, and was the character named Rebecca beforehand? I think it was named beforehand Rebecca, but I got to go there. But, yeah, I was that annoying kid who knew everyone else's lines and would, you know, mouth them in the corner while they weren't <laughs> saying them. That was me. Did you get uh, critiqued? By the director to, like, stop moving your lips? I did not. I mean, I probably did. I don't remember that as a child. But I do remember doing some work as an older kind of youth-aged person, like a high schooler, with um, kind of drama stuff in the youth group. And I was a big talker with my hands. Mm -hmm. And I was always yelled at by one of our directors. um, Only purposeful gestures, Rebecca. Only purposeful gestures. (laughs) Because I would just (laughs) gesticulate wildly all the time. And that's distracting, as I tell my students now. Well, I mean, the uh, the mouthing other people's lines, I've heard uh, professional actors say that they have been scolded by film directors, you know, to, like, stop doing that because they would be standing 
reacting to somebody and mouthing their lines while they were saying them. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know I'm not alone. So apparently that's a fairly common. Um, so you came here to SIU and then, you know, here at SIU, you teach a, a fairly wide variety of courses. And I kind of wanted to talk about a few of those different courses. Sure. So I know one of the ones that you're offering this spring is a course in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that? Because I feel like you know, broadly, we all know kind of what storytelling is, but like, how does that fit into a course? <laughs> yeah. Um, so storytelling class is one of my favorite classes. I've been teaching it here for a while. Um, and it gets a wide variety of students, not just communication students. I get a lot of students from all sorts of majors. I've had agricultural studies majors. I've had, um, you know, students from radio, television and digital media programs. I've had students from undecided majors, you know, all all sorts of things. Um, And I think I love teaching that class because, first of all, yes, it's something, as I tell my students, you all already know how to do this. Mm -hmm. You've told stories at some point in your life. You may not feel that you're good at it, but you know how to do this. And we start with a personal narrative, a story from their life. And my job is just to um, help you figure out some more productive formats to put your stories into, some more productive presentation skills for how to share your stories, make them more engaging for people. Um, And then after we get kind of the basics down, we move into looking at things like genre and how to play around with that and different narrative conventions. Um, We get into storytelling theory a little bit, you know, narrative theories about um, how the world operates and how that fits into the larger comm studies um, kind of material. Right. And uh, more recently, I've included a digital storytelling component because I think so much of communication is moving online these mm-hmm. days. And also the pandemic kind of forced us all online. And for performance classes, that was really interesting. And so I decided let's embrace the medium and work with um, some available online programs that help you do video editing really easily and have students turn their personal narrative that they shared you know, just in person with their own voice and body at the beginning of the semester into a short two or three minute digital story Mm -hmm. version with pictures and audio and music and all of that. Um, And that's been really fun. I've decided to keep that post pandemic because I just, I think those are really important skills for them to learn just like the um, basic communication skills they get out of a class like storytelling too. And what software are they using? that right now we're using a software program that's actually available to everyone for free we're using a kind of a more advanced um classroom kind of um level of it that you can purchase but it's called we video and you can just go to wevideo.com. anyone can get a free account on there and do some basic things um we have a kind of um souped up academic account they've made for educators that we pay a price for um, that allows them kind of access to extra stock video, stock audio, stock um, photos that they can put into their stories and stuff like that. So you mentioned the um, how to make stories better, how, you know, giving them tips and everything. So what are the common mistakes that people make as storytellers? Oh, this is good. You know, your average person, not a professional storyteller, what problems are they having when they're telling a story? Yeah. Well, so one of the first activities I do with my students in a class like storytelling is to ask them, you know, to think about the good storytellers in their life. And mm-hmm. we name the traits those people have, whether it's people they know individually or people they really admire, like comedians who tell stories really well on stage, right? right. Or things like that. But also to think of the bad ones and what do the bad ones do? And so we start there. And one of the things that bad storytellers often do that my students will bring up um, is that they, um, 
they don't give you enough information or they give you way too much information, right? right. We all have that friend who just tells you everything you don't need to know about their story, right? Um, stories have to have a plot. They have to have something that happens. We need some sort of tension or um, some sort of dramatic engagement to get us involved and in why we should pay attention to the story. Um, and then people like to know that the story has some sort of structure. So if you can set it up in a way where you give a little preview of what's to come and make them feel like you've wrapped it all up in the end as humans, I think, because we're so used to stories and we kind of, uh, as some scholars say, understand the world through stories. Um, we like things much better when they're in that kind of understandable story format and not just stream of consciousness coming mm -hmm. to our head, for example. And then I think ab above that, one of the major things that we work on in class is the idea of um, showing versus telling and adding more showing in a live performance venue to our storytelling. So obviously anyone can tell a story, but to show it means what are the parts we can bring to life for the audience by acting it out, right? By mm -hmm. showing them what happened in that moment and not just narrating it for them. So potentially the wild gesticulations come in <laughs> yeah. that part. Yeah. Purposeful gestures, but gestures and wild gesticulations at that point. Yes, of course. Um, so as, as somebody who teaches this, right, and has an expertise in storytelling, um, when you're engaging with people in your everyday life, um, does that make it difficult to like listen to somebody's story? Are you being critical? Because I run into this as somebody with a background in like film and video production that people will say, well, you just, you can't even enjoy watching a movie. I see you <laughs> sitting there criticizing it the entire time. And I'm like, no, I do enjoy movies, but there is a part of my brain in the back that's always kind of making notes to itself. Oh, yeah. And I think, I, sure, I do that listening to people. I try not to say those things out loud to them, right? <laughs> right. Um, or like interrupt someone to get to the point or whatever, because uh, obviously that would be rude. But um, I think for communication majors and especially people who teach, or, or sorry, communication scholars as well as performance studies scholars, that's always happening. So as someone who studies performance and has spent a lot of their life learning, you know, what makes good and bad performance and distinguishing between those and different types of performance and all the things we can look at as performance, I often see all sorts of things I go through in my daily life as performances and start critiquing them. And sometimes I have to take myself out of that so I can just enjoy the moment a little mm -hmm. bit more of what's being presented to me. Right. One of the other courses that you teach is one called Performing Prose, uh, Southern Fiction. And so you just mentioned that you grew up in Maryland, but at, at some point you lived in Texas. Yeah. So uh, I was born in Maryland and I lived there until I was about 13 years old. And then I spent um, the rest of my childhood, adolescence, young adulthood in Texas, North Texas, um, and then um, in Louisiana for that final part of the Ph.D., so you have spent a, a, a significant part of your life in the South. Oh, definitely. And my family's from Texas and Louisiana, like way, way back. Okay. So. And so, and then you said you were originally an English major. So I, I assume at some point while you were an English major and you went to your undergrad originally in Texas, correct? Mm -hmm. And so I assume you were reading a lot of the Southern fiction uh, in your English lit classes? Well, yeah, in my English lit classes, I think we read more of like the great canon. But when I became a comm major, I actually had a teacher who taught a course in Southern fiction okay. in communication studies because he just really enjoyed it. And we performed it too. And that's probably where I got the idea for this course. Um, he loved the work of Flannery O'Connor. And right. so we sure. read a lot of her stories. You read a lot of other folks, you know, 
stories, right? Faulkner, all these sorts of things. And so, um, just like we do in our basic performance course here, where we have students um, perform a piece of poetry and a piece of prose, a piece from a short story, the Southern fiction class that you mentioned, um, the idea there is to work with performing short stories as an individual or sometimes in a group performance. And um, with kind of narrowing in on it as Southern fiction, for me, that gave us a lot of ability to talk about the issues that often arise unique to Southern fiction, unique to that cultural heritage, um, to bring in some other readings kind of about that, right, in terms of race, in terms of economics, all those sorts of things that make the South a kind of different place culturally um, to other parts of the country mm-hmm. and that um, are found in the fiction in different ways. And um, this is actually a class that's been around for a while. Different instructors have taught it different ways. Sometimes people have focused on students reading and performing all from one novel. Sometimes it's more of a topic kind of course like mine. Um, and so, yeah, I've taught that a few times and really, really enjoyed it a lot here. So we're located in Southern Illinois, um, and but a lot of our students come from Northern Illinois, the Chicago area, and, you know, even further north, sure. in Northern states. What is it like for many of them to be in a class where they're not only reading Southern fiction, but then having to perform it? And in a lot of situations, maybe where they haven't been like you um, around Southerners. Sure. And, you know, and so their idea of a Southerner, right, might be the uh, the stereotype that we see on TV. Right. Right. Um, I'm always, like whenever I think about like the Southern stereotype, I always think of the cartoon Futurama and they had the Southern chicken lawyer and he would be like, I'm just a poor Southern chicken lawyer. Right. And, right. and I think that's, you know, that's the impression a lot of people mm-hmm. get. Right. And how do you overcome that? Because I would, you know, I understand the students probably aren't going in intentionally trying to mock, but there's got to be some residual of this is the only Southerners I've ever seen depicted in movies. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, we start with um, some additional readings to just the the kind of fiction that we read in the course. Obviously, we, we do that as well. But we have some additional kind of academic readings about the South as a unique place, about some of the themes that are found in the literature on the South, about um, the history of the South and of Southern culture, um, all sorts of articles, sometimes articles that are um, – very old and present the South in that more stereotypical way that we critique Mm -hmm. sometimes more newer articles written by people critiquing the South itself. Right. Um, In terms of like race or other relationships. But I think one of the things that all my students find is that even if they're from some place that we think of as very Northern, like Chicago, um, they still deal with these same issues, right? They may um, come up in different ways or in different communities in their hometowns than um, what they're reading about in the South. But those issues we're all dealing with as Americans to some extent, right? Um, And so I think that along with the fiction they're reading, you know, in the fiction, all the stories aren't located especially or only in the South. Sometimes there's Southern characters who go elsewhere in the story or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think because um, they have these um, particular themes um, that are familiar to Southern literature, religion, race, Um, some sort of nostalgia for the past. All these are things that people can connect to, even if they aren't from the South particularly. And so we kind of start with that understanding and try to engage in that 
respectfully, even if we don't see ourselves as members of the South or as Southerners in some way, um, so that by the time they get to performing them, you know, we can critique each other if we think a performance is coming across a little too stereotypical mm -hmm. or not enough. And I think the fiction I try to choose, and one of the reasons I like someone like Flannery O'Connor, is yes, she's writing Southern fiction as a Southerner herself, mm -hmm. but I mean, I say Flannery slays everyone equally, right? She just mows down everyone, critiques everyone Absolutely. in her stories. They're, they're all offered the opportunity to make a better choice about what they're doing, but some of them choose it and some of them don't. And I think that's real life, whether you live in the South or not. And so students can relate to that. Um, and at the end of the day, what it does is encourage a deeper understanding that yes, this particular area of the country has a stereotype attached to it, but just like there's a stereotype about people from Chicago or people from the Midwest, that's not always true. And it's actually a lot more complex and nuanced than what they see. And I hope by the end of the class, they get that a little bit. And then there are students from this part of Southern Illinois who see themselves very much as Southerners who identify right. with kind of Kentucky and Missouri and these kind of more Southern states that are, that are, that are often much more um, culturally connected to the university and the people who live down here in this area than um, some of the places that are much farther away that they come from are. Sure. Um, so talking about kind of opening eyes to new avenues of thought, one of the other courses that you teach is one in feminist theory and criticism. And uh, before the show, we were kind of talking about the idea that um, a lot of people come in with preconceived notions of what feminism is, sure. right? And it's often a, um, a distortion um, for political reasons, but sometimes it's just flat out, you know, I, I think general ignorance in, in the population that feminism is an ideal that, you know, we don't necessarily teach in a K through 12 classroom in a, mm -hmm. for a lot of students. They may never actually hear that term. Uh, um, and so they don't really have a good con idea of what it means. So I kind of wanted to give you a chance. <laughs> and I realized that's like asking a whole lot to encompass all of feminism. Sure. But like if you were going to give somebody an elevator pitch yeah. of this is feminism, um, what would you say that is? Um, I think in general, I would start by saying what it's not, because that's often what you hear. It's mm -hmm. not man hating. It's not um, the belief that women are better than men or exactly the same as men in all aspects. Because um, I think those are all ideas that kind of stop people from engaging with feminism. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, first of all, that the most generic, basic definition of feminism I could give you is the belief and advocating for the equal treatment under the law um, and in society of women along with men. Um, and feminism critiques the societal structures and institutions that have often been created and largely run by men for a long period of our history mm -hmm. um, and tries to offer um, a different perspective of what it might look like if um, we change the way that we thought about things, things that we take as assumptions um, that are really just choices that people made at one point in time. And right. the second thing I would say is that there isn't one monolithic Feminism, um, mm -hmm. as I teach my students in this class you're talking about, which, by the way, I should say is a graduate level course that I teach. Um, it's really an introduction to feminist theory. And one of the first things we do the first half of the semester is I take them through a um, textbook that 
introduces them to 12 or more types of feminist theory that all have different names, right? So they're... Um, is liberal feminism, radical feminism, um, socialist feminism, eco-feminism, all these different, uh, psychoanalytic feminism, all these different feminisms that don't always agree with each other, that sometimes are at odds with each other even, um, and really open the idea that, in a, I mean, I know there's the kind of pop culture slogan, feminism is for everyone, that's meant right. to be very welcoming and let people know men can be feminists, anyone can be a feminist that wants to and kind of agrees that women should have the same rights and be treated the same way um, as everyone else in society. Um, but that kind of says there are the, all these different types of feminism that you can learn about and read about that might be more in line with your values or the way that you view the world. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not just one type of feminism that everyone believes and agrees upon that calls themselves a feminist. In fact, it's uh, much more complicated than that. Uh, but I would say all the feminists kind of agree in that general principle of um, women should be guaranteed equal treatment under the law. Mm -hmm. And we should also note that, you know, Oftentimes when we're talking about feminism, we're talking about it in eras as well. It's like first wave, second wave, third wave feminism. And I think that sometimes confuses people because their idea of like is is a feminism class today only reading Betty for Dan, right? right? <laughs> like, and that seems to be, I think, sometimes the assumption, right? That like it's stagnant, that it feminism is what it was in, say, the early 1970s and it hasn't evolved or changed any since then? Yeah, and I would say, so the kind of traditional thing you'll hear about feminism is that there are these waves of feminism. This has been critiqued a lot in my class that you're mentioning. We actually critique the idea of the wave metaphor and how it kind of shortens and reduces history and leaves a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. But that general idea is generally thinks about an initial wave of feminist advocacy that really happened um, around the time period of the suffragettes. Um, in American and kind of Western history, um, or what we might call the global North history um, from a feminist perspective. And that was women advocating for the right to vote and also a lot of issues surrounding birth control and reproductive rights, which is interesting since that's still things that feminists advocate for today. Right. Um, and then you have this kind of period that comes much later in the 1960s and 70s where you have... Um, what people think of as the kind of traditional, you know, bra-burning feminists um, who, right. are, who are critiquing things more from a cultural angle, right, of how women were treated. Um, they were having these consciousness-raising groups and kind of women getting together and creating language. I mean, this is one of the things I think is fascinating as a communication scholar is that um, one of the things we get from feminism is this idea of people getting together, being able to talk about similar frustrating experiences they've had mm -hmm. that seem to be shared based on a trait they share, like gender or race or something, that we don't have language for. So one of the examples is um, sexual harassment. We all understand what that means. Nowadays, maybe we have to do training for it at our jobs, but that term didn't exist until the 1980s. And that's because um, people hadn't given this thing a name. It's not that sexual harassment wasn't happening before sure. the 1980s. Obviously it was. We just didn't have a name for it. We didn't have laws about it. We didn't have ways to say this is what happened to me. Um, and so and a lot of good stuff, I think, comes out of that kind of work that feminists did in the 70s. And then in the 1990s, there's a third wave, so to speak, um, that comes around, uh, actually created by a woman named Rebecca Walker, not me, Alice Walker's <laughs> daughter, uh, Rebecca Walker. Alice um, Walker, the Alice, novelist. Yes, Alice Walker, the novelist um, and feminist. She advocated for her own type of feminism. She called womanism 
in the 70s and 80s. Uh, f- that was kind of more of a, of a type of black feminist thought and critique. Um, but her daughter, Rebecca Walker, comes around really in line with the Anita Hill um, Clarence Thomas hearings mm-hmm. and writes a piece that which was about sexual harassment, which was about sexual harassment and writes a piece responding to that moment where at the end she says, you know, I'm this new type of feminist that's kind of burgeoning up. I am the third wave. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get the idea from. Um, and third wave feminism was much more, um, women can express themselves however they want. It's okay to want to be someone who stays at home and doesn't have a job. It's great to want to go have a job too. Mm -hmm. Um, So much more kind of freedom than maybe some people in the 70s felt there was connected with feminism, although that wasn't the case in reality, but that's often how it's portrayed. Um, And much more women of color getting to join the conversation about feminism. Um, This had been happening all the while, but in a much more um, official sense in like classrooms and theory and things like that. Um, and now I would say in light of things like the Brett Kavanaugh hearings that we had and Mm -hmm. the, um, sexual harassment allegations around those and how so many women got angry about that and the women's march that we had in 2017, um, we're kind of having a moment to Trump's election. Yes. In response to Trump's election. I think we're kind of having a moment right now. We've been talking about this actually in my class because the last time I taught this class was in 2017 or 18. And so it's a very different moment now than it was then. And we've been kind of saying, are we in, you know, in 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 light of Trump and the Women's March, in light of the Kavanaugh hearings and the response to that, in light of Me Too and Time's Up and all these movements we've seen um, recently, are we having a kind of fourth wave or a new moment in feminism that's going mm-hmm. on that we just don't know that's what we're going to call it yet, but it seems to be happening. There seems to be a different type of um, conversation going on. And... Do you think the the value uh, of a course like this is in part that it provides young people, um, particularly I would think young women, but like men as well, um, it provides them some context for where they are right now. Um, and, you know, and again, this is something that I can say when I was in high school was not really touched upon. Um, you know, I was in high school in the nineties and, you know, the history of feminism and everything was not touched upon. This was stuff. Same thing. I didn't learn until college. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, and I didn't learn about women not being able to get a bank loan without their husband or father signing on. Right. Um, until I was in college, you know, not being able to do that till the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think the value of a course like this in part is putting some context there so that, this generation then takes the ball and keeps advancing it um, as opposed to being stagnant, which is the maybe the general population, right? Yeah, I think it's very valuable. So right now I have this graduate class and it has some of our comm studies graduate students, but I also have grad students from a number of different areas in the university, philosophy, English, um, radio, television, who mm-hmm. just wanted to take this class. And one of my students, um, who's an English major and teaches high school English in the area um, as their day job actually said to me when I asked all my students, why did you take this course? Mm. Um, That they were taking it because they want to be better at their job as a um, high school English teacher. And they know there's so much going on culturally in the world right now related to um, not just feminism, but racism and all these different issues. And they are aware they're they're kind of an older person that mm. they don't always know all the language they're not familiar with all the conversations and they really hoped this class would help 
inform them so that they could be a better teacher, right? That they, not just in the materials they chose to offer their students, but in the conversations they had about mm-hmm. the books they read in their classrooms, et cetera. And I love that, right? I love that that's one of the reasons someone would want to take a class like this. Um, but yeah, I think for a lot of the academics who are interested in it, it's eye-opening to them. They all come away saying, I didn't know there was so many different types of feminism out there. Right. Um, and also um, with kind of figuring out where they can jump into the conversation. Because that's really the idea with feminism um, is that all of us can theorize. And mm-hmm. we think of theory, we think of ideas as this thing that you have to be a professor, you have to be an academic to really do and do properly. But right. feminism actually advocates um, for women's type of theorizing, which is often, you know, with women, we have very hectic lives. We're often working a job and also caring for our families or parents or something and running around. And so we have to like scribble our ideas down on little random slots of paper or write our ideas as little short poems and things. And feminists really took that work seriously and mm-hmm. let that be that as well as like people's individual experiences of frustrating, repetitive things like um, sexual harassment that I was talking about that didn't have a name. Um, become things that women could just share about and start writing about. And that experience, that personal experience, those stories people were sharing from their lives is kind of how it relates to other interests of mine, as well as um, the actual issues going on in the country they were concerned about um, and the ideas they were having could be the beginning of places to theorize, to come up with better ideas. How can we make the world better for Mm -hmm. everyone? You know, we talk a lot about gender in my class and about how women are made to feel in our culture and about how... We express things like our femininity, but we also talk about masculinity and what's going on with that, right? We don't just talk about women in a feminist theory course. And I think that's probably true of most feminist theory courses around the country. Yeah, uh, that sounds really interesting. And I I think when you're talking about women, you know, theorizing outside of academia, Mm -hmm. right? And their daily life, jotting down, you know, writing poetry, writing their... Uh, their thoughts. And the digital revolution has really opened that up. So we get this whole generation of, and I don't mean this term derisively, but like mommy bloggers, Mm -hmm. which is women going online and writing about all the problems of raising their kids. And now we see this with a push for, you know, uh, for nationwide federal mandated Mm -hmm. uh, paternity leave. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting because, like, we do see this in lots of different areas. Um, Instagram and TikTok, there's all these videos of women complaining about things going on in their lives and everything. And, I, and I, again, I don't mean that derisively, but it feels like that is the area they feel safe to express that yeah, in a lot I of think- ways. Um, so this has a past in feminist history, those kind of consciousness-raising groups that don't just come out of feminist circles, but were being done already with kind of civil rights groups and other groups working for different causes in the 1960s. Um, But the idea of people getting together, talking, sharing their experiences Mm -hmm. um, around frustrations, around different types of oppressions or marginalizations they might have felt. And I think that happens now online, right? Mm -hmm. The internet is our place where we go to have those interactions, especially over the last two years during something like a pandemic when we're not even as comfortable getting together in people's houses or face-to-face. But even before that, you know, we have um, mommy and me clubs, right? Right. We have 
the wine night book clubs that women go to. You know, we're not just talking about books in those rooms. Babies right? stay out. Right, and exactly. Those sorts of programs. And I think all those things are ways, of course, for women who have similar concerns to get together and talk, but to also begin um, sharing their experiences. And when they all seem to find that they have similar frustrating experiences, or at least a large number of them too, I think most women, like most people, men or women, um, or however you would define yourself, um, would then want to try to fix those things in some way, mm -hmm. right? Would then want to advocate for how can we fix this? And sometimes that's a federal program like universal pre-K or um, family and medical leave and all the things that are going on in our government right now. Um, and sometimes that's, um, you know, advocating for themselves more in their own relationships with their spouses, with their partners at home for mm -hmm. sharing more of the workload, let's say, or something of that nature. Um and so, yeah, I think the internet and social media has become the place where a lot of that consciousness raising occurs that was in the past occurring in people's houses or meeting spaces. All right. Um, well, the last class I wanted to talk to you about uh, on here was your um, studies in tourism course. Yeah. And I know you've done, in addition to just the course, you've done a lot of research and, and presenting on tourism and the idea of performance um, as, a, as a form of, uh, as part of the tourism industry. Um, so could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because, you know, you start talking about performance and tourism, and immediately my thought goes to the person in the Mickey Mouse costume, right? Right, yeah. like they're, obviously they're performing, which we do read an article about in my class. Really? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Great. I have a, actually, one of my professors at LSU was Mickey at Disney and really? wrote about that, and so I literally have her article. And I have another former student who worked at Disney as the guy who ran the Jungle Cruise. Uh -huh. I had him come and talk to my class one time. You mentioned that it was a she, and I was going to ask you, was it a woman? Because that was my understanding. It's usually a woman plays Mickey. Yes, she she told me a lot about Disney, and you know, based on your height, based on your weight, all these different factors, you're kind of limited to what role you would even be considered for. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, all the rules that come with playing that different role. And so she talked a lot about it a lot as a woman playing Mickey, who's a male character, mm -hmm. and the performance of gender, how she was taught to move in such a way to kind of communicate Mickey's maleness, for lack of a <laughs> praise um, and how ridiculous on some level it was right um, but also how kind of strict they were in Disney but in general um, but, but that's yeah that's really fascinating about performing oh, yeah. Mickey as a male because it, at some level I mean you know I guess particularly if Minnie is standing next to him it makes it more you know an obvious contrast sure. of male and female but on average, I don't think of Mickey Mouse as particularly right. male. We don't, we don't think of him as gendered at all. Right. But she would talk about how she was taught to walk like Mickey. And um, one of the ways you're taught to walk <laughs> uh, that was different than like her, her, her normal walk in her life is to pretend as if she had something very large between her thighs um, and then to move like that, right? To move from this center of gravity that's kind of leading from there, which is kind of how Mickey walks if you look at someone in a Mickey costume, uh -huh. which we don't think about, right, in that way at all. I don't right. think there's something, but it's this kind of um, phallic identification with Mickey, I guess. And she writes about this uh, as well as, she has a whole article where she talks about several experiences she had while playing Mickey or kind of interacting with people who would come to meet Mickey, Um and all of that, and what you were allowed to do or not allowed to do and told by Disney, you know, in terms of how to perform this character. Sure. Um, but that class in general, I would say, I, it's not just a performance class. I actually teach it as a general comm studies class because the thing I love about tourism 
I came to performance studies through communication studies. I found comm studies first, and then I found performance studies. And um, tourism as a topic, just to look at, involves all the things that interest me as a communication scholar. So there's a rhetoric of the tourism industry, the way that individual destinations and sites are marketed and sold and portrayed to other people mm-hmm. and um, how that has been harmful or helpful to those countries and destinations in the past, right? There is an intercultural component to the tourist practice, obviously cross-cultural communication, again, amongst people, but also um, kind of global patterns of movement that are based mm-hmm. on tourism and things like the cruise ship industry and how that affects island countries and um all these sorts of things there. So there's the rhetoric side, there's intercultural and obviously like an interpersonal side when you're having these engagements. And then the performance side, um, there are obviously very specific tourist performances that are put on for tourists, right? When Mm -hmm. we go travel to any specific destination, there's the performance that the tour guide themselves gives. um, If you have a tour guide leading you around a site. And then of course there are the individual performances we give as tourists, right? And those are things, those are real things. For for example, um, go do a little Buzzfeed search for what the rest of the country thinks Americans are like. And it's based a lot of times on our tourist performances and other cultures. Right. Right. And this kind of idea, sometimes we get of the ugly American tourist, you know, this tourist that hates everything because it's not like they thought it would be in their mind or not like it is back home or why can't I get this this way or whatever. And isn't open to fully understanding, embracing the new experiences. Um, And so um, we talk about all those things in that class, and that's why it's really exciting for me, and that's why it kind of hits all my buttons as a communication scholar of things I'm excited about and want to talk about. Um, And then I'm also just someone who loves traveling and always has and has been many places around the world, and that's always appealing to me and um, just learning about the world and other people. And so um, I really enjoy teaching that course. I hope I'm going to get to teach it either this summer or next year sometime again. Where is your favorite place that you've traveled? Oh, that's such a hard question. That's what I'm here for. That's a hard question. Um, I've been some very amazing places. Um, Well, if you can't narrow it to one, maybe give us South Africa. I went on safari in South Africa up near Mozambique, and that was amazing um, a long time ago. Uh, I've been to Italy a few times, which is just magical. Mm -hmm. Um, And most recently, I have a friend who has family in Portugal. And so I've gotten to go explore Portugal a few times with her family's um, house over there as a home base that I could stay at rather cheaply. And so um, I really fell in love with Portugal as a really unique destination I might not have been to otherwise. But um, I want to go so many places, you know, it's a big old world. I want to see a lot of it. How does teaching a class like this change the way that you you know, you engage as a tourist, not just, again, as your performance as a tourist, but like how you even think about where you go and, you know, what you do on a trip. Because you were mentioning how a cruise line, right, affects mm-hmm. uh, island nations and everything. Um, so does that affect then your choices as a tourist about where you might go and what you might do while you're there and maybe uh, avoiding the typical tourist traps and trying to find the like more off the map sort of destinations. Sure. Um, So there's actually, so tourism studies is actually a whole field of academic studies on its own um, that exists outside of us. And there's actually a lot of people who have written about this idea a little bit that a lot of people have 
whether they've studied tourism or not, where they treat themselves. You know, I don't go to the typical tourist bubble. I try to get outside of that and go to the different destinations. And they right. see, and they all, or they'll say things like, "I'm a traveler, not a tourist," right? And try to distinguish themselves. And they're, you know, they don't want to wear the fanny pack or they have the camera <laughs> around their neck or the, you know, socks and flip flops or whatever we think of as, you know, the tourists. Um, I think for me, the big way it's uh, reading a lot about ecotourism, about the damages both economically and um, environmentally that tourism does to different um, destinations. We talk a lot in my class about the ethics of tourism and about responsible tourism, which is a kind of growing conversation within tourism studies. And one of the things I have my students, and we talk about um, what, what are called alternative forms of tourism that people are now creating. Um, some are to give you very different experiences that are kind of off the map in mm -hmm. certain ways, um, different ways of kind of exploring a city or a place. And others are um, to give you a more sustainable, less um, harmfully impactful experience on the natural environment or people. Um, and so, yeah, that does, in, that does play a part in um, how I travel and do things. So um, whereas in the past I might have used a major company to book tours and travels for me because obviously that's great. You don't have to do anything. Just sit back. Right. Um, a lot of times then that money is going to a major corporation and not to people in those communities as mm -hmm. much. And so I try to do some research or schedule things myself, um, just doing a little bit more research on my own and kind of reaching out to individual tour groups that are run more locally. Um, for example, a friend and I took a road trip a few years ago across the country to the Grand Canyon and back, and we wanted to go um, – tour this one part of the canyon that's inside a Native American reservation um, mm -hmm. land. And there are big companies that can take you in there and do it, but there's also um, a Native American company where you can get Native American guides to take you through um, their own ancestral lands and areas to do that. Um, it's a little bit, you have to like go find their website and sign up through it there and set right. up through some major Grand Canyon tour promoter. Um, but it was such a wonderful experience and that's definitely the way I would want to do something like that, for example. Yeah, that's that's a good tip because it, it's the sort of thing that people don't think about. Often. Yeah, and I, I didn't think about before I studied this a lot either. So I don't you know blame anyone for that. It's just um, one of those things that you learn and try to be better at in the future. Yeah, um, well, I feel like we could talk for a whole another hour <laughs> about tourism, but I do want to talk about a couple other things sure. that you've done. Um, so one of the research projects that you've done and have had interest in is been flash mobs mm -hmm. and specifically you looked at flash mobs and sort of their memorializing of Michael Jackson. I did in one piece. Yes. Um, and I thought that sounded really, uh, really interesting first off. And you were talking about kind of um, how maybe that changes um, the like image and everything or the memory that people have. Yeah. So uh, the, the, that, that kind of, um, it was an article project that didn't fully take place, that didn't fully materialize, but it became several conference presentations. Um, after Michael Jackson died, I don't remember the exact year. It's probably been about, I don't know, five, ten years since Michael Jackson died. Yeah, somewhere in there. I, um, I'm not sure either. And uh, what I noticed, so I, I had studied flash mobs for my dissertation. That's what I wrote my dissertation on, the original um, eight flash mobs that were created in New York City in 2003 by a guy named Bill Wasik, and then became this kind of phenomena we know of today and we know right. of them primarily as dance mobs right where people kind of spontaneously erupt into song and dance someplace out in public right that's really just one kind of flash mob and that wasn't what the original ones were about at all but um 
that became the prevalent form of them that we all got really familiar with. And after Michael Jackson died, I thought it was really fascinating that instead of just, you know, mourning him by playing his music and everyone gathering outside the way we saw after Prince or Bowie or some other very popular performers died, that people didn't just do that, but they did these um, dance tributes where they would reperform almost flash mob mm. style Michael Jackson's very famous dances like Thriller or Beat It or something that we all remember, the steps from the video. Right. Right. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating because to do that kind of thing, you have to get a big group of people working together, learning all the steps, whether they learn it online or in person. And in doing so, they're not just um, – helping us remember this great performer that a lot of people really loved, controversial as he was. Um, but they're, they're literally like in a way putting his body back together for a moment, right? By mm -hmm. re-embodying re his dance moves that he created, they're in that moment re-performing him, kind of re-, re um, I called it re-membering because they're kind of putting the members of his body, the individual pieces back together to reenact this um memorial to Michael Jackson. And so the, the, the massive amount of those happened in the year following his death. But there right. are some places where every year on his birthday, they do this every single year, what? like clockwork. I think it was a couple of years ago here that at Halloween, they did a, a thriller flash oh, mob. Oh, there's a big move. There was a big move for years uh, for thriller flash mobs that mm. just around Halloween, just as like a fun thing. I think there was one that was going on. I saw just an article about the other day somewhere. Um, but yeah, so I was really fascinated by that and how those dance mobs um, act as a type of public memorial, a type of way where we um, deal with our collective memory and grief over something. Mm -hmm. And I think Michael Jackson, someone like that is fascinating because we all feel perhaps those of us who like Michael Jackson, we felt some attachment to him, some personal connection to him, though most of us probably never met the man. Right. Um, but when someone like that dies, we have this kind of collective desire to get together and mourn them. Um, and this was a really fascinating way that I thought people chose to do that. So I wrote um, a paper on that and was trying to turn that into an article um, because it's a little bit of a different way than kind of just erecting a statue or um, having one big, you know, mass event, like a funeral that mm -hmm. we often see happen when these sorts of figures pass away as kind of ways to publicly memorialize them. This was a performative act that people were engaging in over and over and over that was spreading almost like contagion throughout um, the globe since he was such a famous global performer. Um, and that it really, just really went viral. It, it, yeah, it, it went viral, definitely. And that's particularly interesting because you mentioned Prince and Bowie and here are contemporaries of Michael Jackson and, you know, also very beloved artists with beloved oh, yeah. catalogs of music and everything, but we don't perform them. Mm -mm. And why do you think it is that Jackson gets this extra maybe layer added on to him? Because the other thing that's interesting is, you know, obviously Michael Jackson is a very controversial sure, figure. Yeah. Unlike, well, not that Prince and Bowie never yeah, had their not, controversies. Not to the same extent, but obviously. Yeah. Um, They're generally remembered more fondly. Yeah. Put it that well, way. and I think that's one of the reasons people wanted to remember the good parts of Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I talked about in that piece is when they remembered him, when they put him back together by doing these 
dance mobs where they performed his moves, they were choosing the best parts of him to remember, right? The parts that they loved that were so special to them and not necessarily, I mean, they weren't getting together doing massive reenactments of him holding blanket out the window or something, right? (laughs) Like that, that would be a very different type of fascinating, right? Though fascinating if they did. Um, And so I think that's one reason. I think Michael Jackson's also unique because unlike Bowie or Prince, those of us who grew up with him or who know of him, many people knew of him from the moment he was a child on. So he really right. spent his whole life in the public eye um, and became someone we felt very familiar with, even like once again, if we had never met him, never been to a concert. And because he was so famous for his dance moves. Mm. I mean, we all know the moonwalk. We all know the lean that he does in Smooth Criminal. We all know right. these kind of iconic things that are unique to Michael Jackson. And while Prince is an amazing performer, or was an amazing performer and dancer in Bowie too, they aren't known to the same extent for that same thing, Mm. right? But I don't know if that'll ever happen again. I mean, we have all these other dancers now that are famous and group bands that do dancing that are famous. I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again where you have that kind of worldwide desire to memorialize someone this way. I think it's something unique to his iconography as a performer. Yeah, because you try to think of, you know, Britney Spears, when she passes someday, mm-hmm. will people gather in large mobs right. and do baby hit me one more yeah. time? I, I doubt it, but I'm not sure. But you yeah. know, or Beyonce with all the single ladies, right? Like, mm-hmm. in, Maybe even, Beyonce. I can see it happening more with Beyonce. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, you talk about growing up and there's a very interesting sort of um, – parallel I think for people of our generation mm-hmm. that he there's a certain nostalgia oh yeah that traces along with our entire childhood because you know for me when I think back to being a little kid and being at the skating rink it's oh, Jackson it's Hook. thriller playing oh, you oh, know yeah. and or the Jackson 5 mm-hmm. or you know whatever it might be um yeah. and you know I think that makes him very unique in the way he occupies a place in our culture yeah, I don't think you can think of the 80s particularly without thinking of Michael Jackson. I mean, many other right. decades too, don't get me wrong, but uniquely that decade, people like him and Madonna were just kind of all over it, yeah. Yeah, I often uh, explain to students that, you know, Michael Jackson, it's, it's hard to put him in modern terms because at the time there was no one bigger in the mm-hmm. world and everyone was basically listening to him. Right, and that's I found it so fascinating, not only that this viral dance movement to memorialize him happened, but people from all different countries that have Mm -hmm. all different practices of how to memorialize the dead, right? Those are different all over the world. Right. And yet we saw this one choice made over and over and over again. Um, And some of that may be the virality of some people saw some people doing it on a video and then they wanted to join in. Sure. Um, But I think it's also the fact that everyone loves dancing. You know, Mm -hmm. we might dance in different ways in different cultures, but everyone can appreciate Michael Jackson as a dancer. That's one of the things we liked about him was his music and his dancing. Mm. And so, again, that's one of the things we wanted to remember about him more so than some of the more controversial aspects of his life um, or questionable, problematic aspects of his life. So you mentioned other types of flash mobs, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and as you noted, what we mostly think of are dancing or singing mm-hmm. flash mobs. Um, what are the other types of flash mobs that, um, you know, that you've researched? Well, the original flash mobs were very basic. They were really much more like performance art or something where people would, um, they all happened in, in 
in and around New York City in 2003. Mm-hmm. And they involved all sorts of things. Um, some of the more famous ones, people gathered at the Toys R Us in Times Square and bowed down before the giant T-Rex from Jurassic Park that's kind of animatronic in there. Mm-hmm. And were told to treat it like it was a giant god that they were um, prostating themselves in front of and then leave. Um, one of them, they gathered at a little shoe store um, and acted as if they were tourists off the bus and that they were kind of like aliens who had never seen shoes before and they were so fascinated by them. One of them, they gathered in Central Park and made bird noises for 10 minutes. Um, you know, there were all sorts of different kind of actions like that, little mm-hmm. short actions. Um, some of the more famous ones that became viral, like the dance mob, would be things like the freeze, um, where um, you're kind of walking through a very crowded place, like an airport, let's say, or something, and all of a sudden everyone around you, except for maybe a few people, freezes in a particular pose and mm-hmm. holds that for a preordained time of five, six, seven minutes, and then drops it and just walks right back into whatever they were doing. And if you've ever been part of that, I was actually a part of one of these mobs when they did one at at LSU during my time as a graduate student there. You were performing as I, part of I it? performed in a freeze. We did okay. a freeze the quad, which is this big area of the campus. Um, and of course, I was studying flash mobs. So I was like, I'll be a part of this and write about it in my dissertation. Um, and it's very hard to hold a freeze that long, especially if you choose a difficult position. Right. <laughs> which I don't recommend. Um, but it's magical. And for the people who walk through it, just hearing the delight of someone who just happened to walk through that part of campus that day and kind of happening upon this moment and not knowing what's going on, but being kind of delighted by it. Right. Right. And then it's over very quickly and it goes away. So that's one. There were a lot at first where people would gather and play children's games, kind of fascinating with like what's going on with squid game becoming this popular cultural phenomenon. But there were a lot of them early on in the mid to late two thousands where people would gather and like play huge games of red Rover in a parking lot somewhere. Pillow fights were a big type of flash mob that everyone did gather and play pillow fight mobs. Um, so a lot of kind of game oriented mobs. That was one category. There were singing mobs where people would, instead of bursting into dance collectively, they would burst into song or have instruments. They would break out and start playing. There's been some beautiful, there's some videos you can find online of people doing beautiful versions of that all over. Um, so those are just a few of the other types of flash mobs that became really popular. So what is the value of this? Like why perform a flash mob? Why, um, why do you think people want to perform as part of them? And why do you think that people generally respond in a positive manner to them? Well, I think people respond in a positive manner because they're unexpected mm-hmm. and they're either usually very silly or um, playful. So mm-hmm. There's something kind of delightful about them rather than something ominous or freaky about them, you know? Right. Um, I think that's why people respond that way. I think why people want to do it is a much more interesting question. I tried to answer that a little bit in my dissertation. Um, And I think it's different for different types of flash mobs. For those original mobs that were more just actions in New York City, they happened in 2003. They happened at the advent of two really important things. It was a couple years after 9-11, and New York City was a surveillance-heavy state for the first time in a very long time, where obviously they're very concerned about another terrorist attack and there were cameras watching everyone everywhere. And you kind of had this awareness moving around the city, if you talk to people, that you were being watched all the time. And so some folks have argued, I argue this a little bit in my dissertation, that we know you're watching us, let's give you something to watch. It was kind of a way to rebel and act out against that in a playful, quick manner where even if the cops were called, you could run away before they got there and not really 
have some, you know, get in trouble for it. And that being part of the motivation to intentionally stage them in places where there would be security cameras that would capture this. Right. The guy who created them came out years later and said he did it as an art project to be a project that was purely about scene. In other words, he was kind of looking at the rise of hipster phenomenon and kind of scenesterism. And the whole point of the art project, as he called it, the mob project, would be to be seen in the scene, would just be to known that you were being there, even if you didn't know why you were there or what it was about. Right. It was just being a part of it that made you cool. And so Bill Wasik, who created those original ones, said that's why he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people participate in these later ones that are kind of the singing or dancing or freeze thing because they want to have a kind of impactful moment or they want to memorialize someone like Michael Jackson or some particular moment. Um, eventually flash mobs get co-opted by corporations and they start using them to sell products and that's when they kind of die out and aren't cool anymore. As um, all as, art as all things do, right? <laughs> uh, but there's a guy named Howard Rangel who wrote a book um, called Smart Mobs and he was looking at the same kind of viral gathering phenomenon. Because the other thing that happens in 2003 when these are created is we get the ability through our new smartphone technologies um, to kind of mass text everybody for the first time. Mm-hmm. That wasn't something we were able to do was like send a text to all your contacts. And that's how these kind of virally spread. Someone would come up with an idea and say, meet here at this time. You'll get further instructions and just send it out to everyone that was in their phone. Um and so there's something about these new social media technologies at the time that we had then and now that allow us to kind of play at revolution, mm-hmm. in a sense, is what Rheingold says, that allow us to kind of play act out some kind of mass organizing and gathering to stage an event. And that they're really, what he argues, Rheingold argues, is that they are training grounds for future types of protest or um, revolutionary performance practice, which is kind of fascinating if you think of something like the January 6th insurrection, um, not as a flash mob, but as something that people planned online um, and probably communicated about mm-hmm. um, through, um, uh, you know, messaging apps and things that were encrypted and stuff like that um, to be able to mobilize very quickly and then disperse very, well, in some ways very quickly, in other right. ways not so much. But yeah, it's like, what are these with all technologies, with all new tools, they can be used for lots of things, for good and for bad, for fun, and for more serious um, types of practices too. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think of it as a a primer or a training ground uh, because, yes, January 6th, so some very negative events, but also some positive things like mm-hmm. the organization around Black Lives Matter oh, yeah, and totally. Occupy Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you start looking at those and you start saying, oh, that's the generation who grew up watching flash mob videos yeah. on the Internet. And yeah, now- so they saw that there was a way I could do this. Right. right. Maybe they had even taken part in one of those f- planned flash mobs somewhere in their local mall or whatever. Um, and then said, well, I can organize people this way. Well, uh, I would love to continue talking about this, but I know you have a class to go teach here in a few minutes, but we did want to finish with the question that we ask everyone, which is, uh, what are you watching, reading, playing, or listening to currently? Well, I've been watching a lot of Dune recently. So my um, partner is obsessed with Dune and has read all the Dune books or is rereading them. We went and saw the movie last week, and yeah. then we rewatched the 1984 one at home to see how it measured up. 
um, as well as Doctor Who. We're getting very excited for Doctor Who to come back on Halloween. We're Doctor Who fans. Um, so thumbs up or thumbs down to the new Dune? I, I, okay, so I love the new Dune. I have not read the books. Um, okay. My partner likes the old Dune better than the new Dune. He, really? he says they're doing different things, but yeah. in terms of like faithfulness to the text, which is his primary thing, he thinks the 1984 David Lynch version is more closely aligned with the text than the new one. But I think the new one is actually what Denis Villeneuve, if I can't pronounce his name properly, I apologize. That's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what he's doing is what I tell my storytelling students to do, to show and not just tell. Mm -hmm. So if you watch the 1984 movie, there's a lot of voiceover, there's a lot of like inner thought narration going on mm -hmm. that explains a lot about the world of Dune and the universe of Dune. Whereas um, there's none of that in the new film, but there is a lot that you can pick up on if you're paying attention to like the subtle moments of what the characters are trying to show you. Mm -hmm. All right, so a recommendation for the new Dune. Um, so that's also on HBO Max. It's on HBO Max, yes. yes. And I'm sure it'll be out the red box to rent for like a buck fifty in a few months if you just want to wait for it that way. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, Rebecca, thank you for taking time out of your day and everything to be here and talk to us. Uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. And I feel like there's several um, different threads. We kind of had to cut short, <laughs> but we could have like gone on for quite I'll a bit longer. I'll come back for round two if you ever want me. This has been a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you. Um, it's been a pleasure having you as well. Thank you for everyone who's been listening. And uh, we'll be back soon with a new episode.